This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. On this program, we invite a poet to pick a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. Then they read a poem of their own that's been published in the magazine. My guest today is Richie Hoffman, the author of two collections of poetry and the recipient of a Ruth Lilly Fellowship from the Poetry Foundation and a Wallace Stegner Fellowship from Stanford University. He teaches at the University of Chicago. Welcome, Richie. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Kevin. It's great to have you in this new year. So the first poem you've chosen to read is Twilight by Henri Cole. Tell us what drew you to this particular poem while you were looking through our archive. It's a really strange poem, a poem that keeps me on my toes. It's constantly turning and twisting and returning and making room, I think, for lots of different kind of language. Well, let's give it a listen. This is Richie Hoffman reading Twilight by Henri Cole. Twilight. There's a black bear in the apple tree, and he won't come down. I can hear him panting like an athlete. I can smell the stink of his body. Come down, black bear. Can you hear me? The mind is the most interesting thing to me. Like the sudden death of the sun, it seems implausible that darkness will swallow it, or that anything is lost forever there. Like a black bear in a fruit tree, gulping up sour apples with dry sucking sounds. Or like us at the pier, somber and tired, making food from sunlight, you saying a word, me saying a word, trying hard, though things were disintegrating. Still, I wanted you, your lips on my neck, your postmodern sexuality. Forlorn and anonymous, I didn't want to be that. I could hear the great barking monsters of the lower waters calling me forward. You see, my mind takes me far, but my heart dreams of return. Black bear with pale pink tongue at the center of his face is turning his head like the face of Christ from life. Shaking the apple boughs, he is stronger than I am and seems so free of passion. No fear, no pain, no tenderness. I want to be that. Come down, black bear. 
I want to learn the faith of the indifferent. That was Twilight by Henri Cole, which was published in the October 17th, 2005 issue of The New Yorker. That was terrific and uh, so well read. And I can hear how you hear it. You hear it as somewhat deliberate. Uh, is that right? Is that how you interpret the lines? Yeah, that's how I hear them. Um, if listeners know about Henri Cole's poetry, they probably mostly know him working in these free verse sonnets with their turns and their voltas. This is a much longer poem for Henri Cole, and I love the way that it keeps turning. The way it opens, there's a black bear in the apple tree and he won't come down. <laughs> it almost sounds to me like a children's book or right. a children's story. That's it right. has such a different kind of language. And then after this big turn, we get the mind is the most interesting thing to me. It just is it, Talk about a turn. I mean, suddenly we're inside the speaker, the viewer. That's right. And the bear... Well, I, I was thinking about it's a children's story, but it's also kind of a fable. And it's also taking place, we're told, at twilight, you know, or he's thinking about this idea of twilight, this in-between state, right? Um, yeah, and they're, they're in-between states throughout the whole poem. That's right. Well, and can you hear me? What an interesting thing. Most of us would run uh, or whatever you're supposed to rear up big and tall or to scare away a, a black bear. But this idea that this bear is being summoned, and the bear isn't just a bear, of course. That's right. He wants the bear to come down, and in a way, I think he lets in a kind of world of danger into mm. the poem. I can hear him panting like an athlete. I can smell the stink of his body. The language becomes, even though it's simple, it's quite intense. And I think you're right. Most of us would not want to encounter the black bear here. The speaker of the poem not only wants to encounter the bear, but also kind of wants to become him by the end of the poem. Mm. Well, I like this move. You call it a, a turn, and I, I love that, and helping people think about the volta in a sonnet. Would you just gloss that for us really quick for those of us who are a little rusty? Yeah, so in the traditional sonnet form, um, there's a tension between how the poem opens and how it ends, um, usually about eight lines into the sonnet, or in the Shakespearean version, 12 lines into the sonnet, the poet turns. There's usually a break, a fracture. And if what preceded was narrative, we might get a thematic summary. If what was discourse or explanation, we might get a direct address. There's a change in the poem that is both intellectual and musical. There's a kind of shift um, in that key moment that kind of signals the poem's closure, that signals or gestures at some kind of meaning. And one thing I love about this poem is that it just keeps going. Um, <laughs> the mind is the most interesting thing. Right. There's a turn, but as you said, it extends. Yeah, it extends, but it, it, it even happens in the middle of a sentence. And I think that's kind of remarkable it becomes kind of apocalyptic, like the sudden death of the sun. It's kind of like, I thought we were in the world of the children's fable, and now we're in the apocalypse. It seems implausible that darkness will swallow it, or that anything is lost there, like a black bear. And through that technology of the sentence, through the simile, through the like, um, we go back to the black bear in the tree. So even though we've kind of 
turned, we've shifted the kind of language the poem's going to be operating in, we keep coming back to that central figure of the bear. There's the rhyme there, too. Anything is lost forever there, like a black bear uh, in a fruit tree. There's almost this kind of switching of the air, uh, bear, there sounds. And then the discussion of the sounds, gulping up sour apples, those P sounds you get with dry sucking sounds that switch to S sounds. And you can almost hear this bear. I mean, it's almost like they're drowning the bear, you know, and, and they're past pleasure, perhaps. You know, there's a sense of, you know, they're not just eating for fun or they're not eating to, for sustenance. There's almost a kind of gluttony that the bear comes to represent, I feel, in this part. And then, or like us, at the pier, somber and tired. You know, the P sounds are sort of there, the S sounds are sort of there, but it's lost that kind of, maybe it's more a glorious kind of gluttony that uh, the speaker envies um, that is, is gone. Making food from sunlight. Whoa, you know, they're plant-like almost, right? They're, they're not even, I don't know, there's something poignant, somber and tired about that. That's right. And the kind of immediacy of the sucking sounds and the the sour apples being gulped gets replaced by a memory here. Mm. You saying a word, me saying a word, trying hard, the things were disintegrating. This is a memory of a relationship, but it's a relationship in peril. It's struggling to survive. And the bear doesn't seem to be. The bear, uh, as we learn later, is the faith of the indifferent. I mean, there's a way to go before we get to that. Because in a way, as I'm saying here, when you're hearing these sounds, there's a kind of passion in the bear that is not in the us at the pier. That's right. It's like, in in a way, I've, I've often thought that the bear kind of stands in for living in one's body. Mm. And whenever we get the image of the bear in the poem, we often get the most animated and present kind of sounds. It's when the poet starts discussing memory and mm. ideas and theory that they kind of it kind of loses its its music. It almost feels more like prose. Well, and I think a lesser poet would start with a disintegration, and instead it starts with a bear. It starts with a memory. But even that part, and you know, readers might not have that, or listeners might not have that in front of them. But it's a, a quatrain, or like us at the pier, somber and tired making food from sunlight, you saying a word, me saying a word, trying hard. There's one more line. But you saying a word, me saying a word, trying hard, all those D sounds. So, you know, that's Mm. over. That's a bad situation right there, as they say. That's right. (laughs) And then it says, though things were disintegrating. And so, again, to your point about the turns, if this was a sonnet, this would be the last four lines of it, the volta. But here, it's like, it just keeps dropping and dropping through. There's no bottom to this disintegration, it feels like. That's right. And yet, even disintegrating, the desire is still so intense. I love this next part of the poem. I think it's my favorite part. Still, I wanted you. Your lips on my neck, your postmodern sexuality. This kind of interesting duality between the physical presence of the lovers. I want your lips on me, but also the kind of idea of the relationship, this right. postmodern sexuality, that it that it means something to be with this other person too, beyond yeah. just physical presence and pleasure. Do you think that's 
humor there because I can't. I, I, I don't know how to take, you know, I love it. Your lips are my neck, your post I mean, you know, I know exactly what they mean, but I also am like, is it love they're talking about? Or is it like this, again, a, a disintegrating, you know, maybe passion? I think it's a disintegrating passion, but I think there's still room in it for bliss, um, for new discovery. The speaker doesn't want to be forlorn and anonymous. That's mm. how he feels in the relationship. I didn't want to be that. That word want comes again and again in the poem. I want to be that. I don't want to be that. And there's this chilling moment I've always been really struck by. I could hear the great barking monsters of the lower waters calling me forward. I'm curious what you make of that, Kevin. It's always kind of, it's always kind of confounded and, and thrilled me. Well, I, I would go to the moment before and between the postmodern sexuality and the, the lower waters, which is forlorn and anonymous. And I, I love when poets do this, where they tell you before they talk about why that is important. So in a way, they're saying forlorn and anonymous. It's almost just words, you know, like somber yeah. and tired, forlorn and anonymous. These are states of being. And then it says not that, but opposite of that. I didn't want to be that. So there is a sense, as you're saying, that the speaker is that, but is, is also then takes it away in the next gesture. I love that. And then I could hear. And it's not tons of enjambment, but right there, I could hear break the great barking monsters of the lower waters, a, a longish line with that R sound echoing, calling me forward. And it sort of feels like a version of the bear. It feels like a kind of myth of, I don't know, someone on a pier looking lonely out into the sea, a kind of Greek uh, myth of, you know, wandering and of sirenship and, and being sort of tossed on the rocks, you know, by love. Um, there's a feeling there for me of that. What do you make? Yeah, it's also, it's also connecting me a bit to the sudden death of the sun mm. that's earlier in the mm-hmm. poem. It's like the kind of sure. ultimate dissolution what would it mean to to join the barking monsters and the lower waters these are you know this ain't like the high sea uh, like this is like sinking no this is the muck of forlornness and anonymity that's right of being lost forever of disintegration and that's the threat that's in the poem mm-hmm. um, and it's interesting that that it's the bear in the tree with this kind of urgent totally present, totally sensuous need that's presented in the poem as the kind of opposite of the danger of the lower waters. And then this, you see, my mind takes me far, but my heart dreams of return. I mean, you can't get away with that. How do you get away with that? That's amazing. Uh, that <laughs> It's an amazing line. Um, I think you. I think Henri Cole can get away with it because there's... The poem uses so many different kinds of language. You know, the the strange specificity of the great barking monsters of the lower yes. waters. It almost balances out the kind of totally pure, almost ancient lyric of my heart mm-hmm. dreams of return. Mm-hmm. I mean, to have a heart in a poem like that, a heart that dreams, my mind takes me far, but my heart dreams of return. And that's another twilight in the poem, too, isn't that's it? Right. Between the mind and the heart, between wandering off into ideas, into memory, into the past, versus 
the heart that dreams to return. And, and where mm-hmm. do we return in the poem? We return to the black bear, that initiating image. Well, and, and there's a moment that there's this you see, uh, which could be us, of course, and the you that is more specifically the lover, but a sonnet, I think one of its powers that you hinted at is that it's usually to a beloved, you know, it's to someone who often is gone. You know, maybe it's because they're gone forever. Maybe it's because they're gone for the moment. They're gone for the night. But there's something about that that is being called out to, at least for me, when it says, you see, you know, which is a great colloquialism. And then we have black bear with pale pink tongue. And then I, I thought we were up for a second that you was the bear, right? There's a, almost an address invoked there and then turned away from at the center of his face is turning yes. his head like the face of Christ from life. I mean, it's every register at once. Um, it's so intense. And how do you take that that turning? Again, we have return, turning. Well, it's interesting that the bear has a face now. Before, <laughs> he's mostly existed as just sounds, right. as panting. Um, And now he has a face, and not just a face, but a face with a pale pink tongue. In a way, it's it's kind of the most sensuous, it's almost erotic, almost Mm. human kind of element of the bear um, as he's becoming a kind of Christ figure, turning his face. Is it it toward death? Mm. Is it away from the speaker? Is it away from our desires? Away from passion? Away from the possibility of, of being hurt? and into something, again, almost transcendent up in the apple tree, as if it's kind yeah. of like a Renaissance painting of the, the crucifixion, this bear which had been such a kind of natural body now almost becomes the whole history of art. I love that idea. We're not far from fable, but we're probably far from a kid's tale or, or something small. But one of the powerful things about, I think, children's stories or fables in general is there's so many levels that you can read them at. And and I I think you've done such a powerful service helping us think about these levels. What about this shaking? Shaking the apple boughs. He is stronger than I am and seems so free of passion that that those two things are put together, that that the kind of the strength of the bear is seen alongside being free of passion is really sure. interesting. And of course, not a neutral word um, now that, that Christ's been invoked. Sure. It's almost like we're shaken back too into the mode that the poem opened with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the memory is gone. The, the discourse about the mind and the apocalypse are gone. We're back right, right in the scene where we began shaking the apple boughs is this a kind of threatening instance of the bear or is he just kind of blissfully going about his eating, almost unaware of his strength? And I think for the speaker, that's kind of the seduction is like what the bear is unaware of. Well, and the bear is so loaded with symbol, as you said, like the face of Christ from life. But then it's almost like the bear isn't a symbol anymore or is past that. I don't know. It's There's something about it that had me thinking about original sin, this notion of the apple, eating the apple, this being, you know, innocent at first and then not. It's like the line, that twilight between 
a certain notion and certain culture of what brought on guilt, you know, what brought on shame, all these things. And then their list, uh, the speaker's list, is fear, pain, and tenderness. None of that, you know. Let's go back to a prelapsarian state of having no fear, no pain, no tenderness. I want to be that. Mm. It also makes me think about the relationship at the pier, too, the the stakes of the lips on the neck and the postmodern sexuality um, in that world of original sin, um, to be yeah. kind of free of free of those strictures, sure. free of those labels, to to exist in one's body, to derive strength from a lack of passion, fear mm. about what others think, pain, and the ability to hurt one another, um, but also the ability to be tender. That's kind yes. of a surprise for me. No fear, sure. no pain, no tenderness. That tenderness, too, is a weakness um, that the speaker wishes to be free of. Yeah, yeah. And tenderness has kind of two meanings to me. It's both no tenderness, like no wound, but then also tenderness as in empathy. So there's this kind of weathering that the speaker almost invokes and then also sort of says, I don't want to be weak and wanting, you know, and and to miss this person or to have that remind me. I want to be beyond that. I want to be that. And even that is such a powerful thing. You know, I don't want to be the bear. It's just I want to be that. I don't even want to be the bear. I want to be the thing past the bear. Um, that's really powerful. And then this end where, again, faith echoes, come down, black bear. I want to learn the faith of the indifferent. It's amazing um, to address the bear again, too. Um, yeah, and it's a couplet, right. come down, black bear. It's the repetition of, the, of one of the earlier lines in the poem. I want to sure. learn the faith. It's not even about being anymore, but, but being instructed. Um, and it's that. interesting that this bear, who's been kind of, frankly, the least intellectual part of the poem, um, <laughs> right, is, right. is ultimately tasked with, with teaching us with teaching us how to be what in our bodies in the present moment indifferent to pain um, to find a strength in that is something maybe we long for i want to ask you about the sort of slang term of a bear do you think that plays in here like there's some attraction to the bear in a way i think that's right i mean i think the whole poem is kind of really subtly animating um kind of elements of gay imagery and slang, not just in the bear, but sure. um, but we also get the locker room in the opening, the the figure of the athlete, the figure of the peer that's, again, not neutral mm-hmm. in the history of gay literature as a, a place right. of of cruising, of meeting, of, of being found. I definitely think that's an element that Cole is playing with here, especially complex against the, the kind of Christian element. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I, I think there's something, I'm still going back to that quatrain in the middle, or like us at the pier, somber and tired, you know, and just making food from sunlight. Again, we're in this fabulous, fabled place, you know, and, and here you see that myth kind of distilled, but also exploded at the same time. And I, I think there's something that a poem can do about that, like that. Um, it can make something so intense and distill it down, but it has this kind of 
like wine, it kind of keeps opening up and opening up and changes as you read it. Yeah, and I think that Henri Cole is a kind of brave poet in in constantly shifting the language. I feel like there's a way the poem almost feels stitched together, and it's amazing that we keep returning to the figure of the black bear. He's a persistent kind of desire, um, even as the mind takes us far. There's a way like our heart kind of longs for return to the simple world of the black bear. I want to turn to your poem, because I could talk about Henri all day, but I could also talk about your uh, poem, French novel, um, which I want to hear in a moment. Is there anything you want us to know about it? How would you situate readers before hearing it? Well, I think of it as a love poem, a kind of complicated love poem. I think I was really interested in what it would mean to be someone's second lover. Um, I can imagine a lot of poems about the passion and brilliance of first love, but to have had a past lover too, I think, opens up maybe a somewhat different kind of future. I also wanted to capture, in some sense, a kind of wintry mix, a kind of world that's melting in between winter and spring, my own kind of twilight in between semesters that really get us thinking about time and how we exist in it with others. All right, here's Richie Hoffman reading his poem, French Novel. French Novel. You were my second lover. You had dark eyes and hair like a painting of a man. We lay on our stomachs, reading books in your bed. I emailed my professor. I will be absent from French novel due to sickness. You put on some piano music. Even though it was winter, we had to keep the window open day and night. The room was so hot, the air so dry, It made our noses bleed. With boots we trekked through slush for a bottle of red wine we weren't allowed to buy, our shirts unbuttoned under our winter coats. The French language distinguishes between the second of two and the second of many. Of course, we'd have other lovers. Snow fell in our hair. You were my second lover. Another way of saying this. You were the other, not another. That was French Novel by Richie Hoffman. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. So much to talk about with this poem. I was struck hearing it again 
uh, about the sounds in the line, like, with boots we trekked through slush for a bottle of red wine, that rhythm that's building up, because other parts are much more clipped, it feels. And I could hear it, but also I can see it. I mean, there's something about how you really evoke I think moments that are quite funny. Um, I emailed my professor, I will be absent break from French novel due to sickness. I mean, I I had to chuckle, not only because uh, (laughs) I was a professor when you were (laughs) in school once, um, but uh, I also think about how the poem is really about young love, but as you put it, not first love. And how do you make that happen uh, in terms of the line breaks? I mean, I have my thoughts, but... Were you conscious of that? Is that something that came about? Well, you know, every time I read this poem, Kevin, I, um, you know, I've read this at schools all over, and then I realize that it's a poem that's promoting cutting class and underage <laughs> drinking in one poem. So I'm probably responsible for uh, for a, a lot of delinquency in the poetry yes. c- community here. Yes, do not do what's in this poem. That's either. right. That's right. Um, but I think. I'm really interested in a poem that has a kind of um, movement, a kind of tension mm. between lines of different length. I knew I knew yes. that You Were My Second Lover kind of had to be on its own line. It's kind of the start of a letter almost. It's the, the invocation of a memory. But I also knew that there were moments I kind of wanted to stretch. I think mm-hmm. my goal in this poem was how do you capture the kind of reckless sensuousness of being a college student in love. Um, they're reading the books. They're they're cutting class. Of course, the class that the, the speaker cuts is French novel. And then he gets to, uh, with his second lover, kind of live inside a French novel right. for a day. Well, and it has a film noir quality almost, except there's no, uh, you know, there's bodies, but not a, a dead one. You know, there's a kind, but there is a loss, it feels like, lurking, right? And I would say it's in the third line, like, like a painting, you had dark eyes and hair break, like a painting of a man. I mean, this is both general, but also it feels very specific. Like it's about the painting and the unreality, I guess, of the relationship, I feel, uh, of of this relationship rendered, turned into a novel, that there is a romance, not just uh, between the two, but of the idea of romance. Is that at play for you? Oh, absolutely. And I think it's just fitting of, of this speaker, too, to turn the lover into a painting. Of course, there's the piano music and there's the wine. There's all of these tropes of love mm-hmm. that they're trying to to live through. And I think also a desire to make the love permanent. Yes. Um, I think right from the beginning, there's a fear that, that maybe we'll slip away from one another. Maybe this relationship will be as easy to leave as cutting class or or being absent from a session of introduction to sure. French novel. Well, that's that great break. I will be absent. You know, there's a sense of absence and maybe even absinthe um, uh, in the poem itself um, of forgetting, even though it was winter. We had to keep the window open day and night. The room was so hot, the air so dry. That's all one breath. The window open all the way to the air so dry. 
And I've been in those hot rooms, you know, that you have to keep open. But there's something about, you called it the wintry mix before we heard the poem. But here I almost think of it as a kind of um, hothouse. Yeah. You know, that the couple is in this hothouse that is so special and perfect, but then they have to leave. And then it kind of disintegrates in a certain way. Um, They can't find their goal, which in this case is a slush for a bottle of red wine. But I think it's also this kind of state of in-betweenness. They are trekking, but they can't get there. They're on winter coats, but their shirts are open. They're in a hot room with the window open. You know, there's a kind of tension uh, in subtle ways. And I love how you, you really don't embellish too much, but you pick the exact right details to get us to that kind of state of in-between and of being. Mm, no, thank you for saying that. It's just, it's such an in-between world and a world that's kind of slipping away. Um, mm. I'm thinking about the other in-between too, is that the speaker's in the class and not in the class too, right? So there's this other <laughs> sure. thing kind of outside of him that he's supposed to be at, but instead he's he's on this trek. And they're not allowed to buy the red wine either, you know, they're not... 21 years old yet. And so there's this desire to participate um, in this culture of romance too, but they're they're kept out of that too. Right. Perhaps it wouldn't have been French wine, but, you know, a bottle of red wine in a French novel, they go well together. I wonder about this part too. Our shirts unbuttoned under our winter coats, the French language distinguishes between the second of two and the second of many. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me uh, rereading it now. I think I wanted to play with some of those shifts in language from probably the most kind of sensuous and reckless. I totally remember just throwing a winter coat over my pajamas and, and leaving the house <laughs> and trekking out in Boston. Sure. And then this language that's like super formal. Um, and right. as I read it now, it's almost quoted. It's kind of like something you would learn in yes. French novel class. There's this interesting distinction um, in French. There's two words for second. There's second and there's deuxième. And um, it's not a rule or anything, but the Académie Française has my back on this, which I'm grateful (laughs) for. But it's really more about elegant style than a kind of grammatical rule. But there's this word second that's often used when there are only two, things like the Second Empire or the Second World War. Um, And there's a little kind of hope and aspiration in those examples. And, and then there's deuxième, which is just in the list. And I thought, you know, when you're in a relationship, in the thick of a relationship, there's this desire for permanence or this hope for permanence. Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the, mm. is the second of two lovers that I'll <laughs> have in my life. But of course, even well-intentioned, you don't know what the course of your life will be, especially that young. I also couldn't help but think of the idea of, which happens in many romance languages, between the familiar you and the sort of more formal or plural you, toi versus vous. Was that at work there? Was there something thinking about in terms of familiarity? Because there's something about the shift in language, I would say to you. When that more formal thing happens, the poem becomes more formal. It's a distance suddenly. That's right. It's kind of, uh, you know, the intimacy of the unbuttoned shirts, that kind of state of undress is is so different from, I don't know, the kind of strictness of the, the French, you know, usage. 
rules. Yeah. And then that interjection, of course, we'd have other lovers. I, I hear the speaker kind of talking to himself that there's this other, you know, there's going to be this this other world ahead of us. But then the snow right. falls right in the hair of the speakers. It's like it's constantly negotiating, I think, between formal rules and expectations and ideas and then the kind of sensuous beauty of being together sure. in the in the melting landscape. But I also think the sounds are governing us there. You know, even just sort of the ends of the lines toward the end, of course, hair, lover, this, other, another. You know, we get those kind of rhymes and that consonance of the R sounds. But I also, you pointed it out, but we'd have other lovers, snowfall in our hair, is actually one of the more long lines in a poem with some very long lines, but then some very short ones, including of many, of course, a brilliant uh, connection of those. And so I really love that combination of sounds and space, you know, and, and the way that it kind of lays out and, and gives us enough room to experience almost the start, middle, and finish of this relationship. There's something powerful of that. And when you were talking about snowfall in our hair, I couldn't help but this idea of suddenly they're aging. It's suddenly their hair is white, you know, and this idea of time is really playing so nicely and subtly. You know, a lesser poet would say, by the way, I'm pointing out a metaphor right now, snow and hair. There's a restraint in the poem. And I wonder how you think about restraint because... That can be hard to do. Um, I think poets often, we want to have the bombast and the restraint. How do you go about that tone of restraint, I guess? I think for me, often what draws me to poems is kind of what's unsaid between the lines, that there can be a kind of magic in the silences. Um, And I'm interested in kind of what happens between of course we'd have other lovers, and snow fell in our hair. There's a way that the whole relationship can kind of flash before the lover's eyes in that moment. So I I don't know, I think like on a formal level, I'm really interested in the push and pull of lines, Um, the way that those can feel kind of sensuous, like breathing, or that kind of variations in the length of sentences can almost indicate psychological shifts somehow in the speaker. Well, I think that's really well said. I firmly believe that the line is really one of the key, if not the atomic unit of a poem. And you can kind of conjure anything else out of it, the whole of the poem, say. Maybe think of it as a kind of fractal situation. We'd have other lovers, snow fell in our hair, as you said. That's the whole of the relationship right there in one line. That's right. The and, whole of the poem. And, and and the line gets to bring together two sentences that don't belong together. It gets to pull them into relationship. It gets to make them intimate, but just for a minute, because then yeah. we're on to the next line. The you addressing the beloved, this is from a, a book, A Hundred Lovers. How does this talk to other poems in that book? which is such a terrific book as a whole, the kind of tension you're talking about in a line, is that occur between poems for you? Oh, absolutely. And I thought in that book in particular, because there were so many kinds of encounters and lovers that were invoked in those poems, I thought I really had to carefully manage 
how the poems were kind of unfurling in an order to read the book um, that has all of these yous and all of these he's, these different pronouns that kind of come in and out of the poems. I, I had to think very carefully about that as I was putting the book together. And I think one of the things I, I think about rereading this is that it gets to be both. I think there's such a curiosity about the fate of these lovers, what happens to them. Is this you, the same you, as in other poems? But rereading it, I just, I feel back in the thick of that love affair again. I feel in the midst of it. And I think in the memory that the poem strives to recount, but also in the rereading of it again and again, I think those lovers get to be kind of preserved there, protected there. There doesn't have to be a future or a past for them. And even though they're in this melting world, it's hmm. it's not disappeared yet. No, I, that's so well said. I, I think a little like the painting or the French novel, it's seeking immortality in some sense. There's a reaching for that. The snow didn't just fell, it's still there. And you call it a melting world, but there's also a kind of frozen world. It's frozen in time. It's encased. You know, what I love about the poem is that you can be that I for the moment. You know, the lyric poem transports us. And I feel like people might be asking, which am I? Am I the you? Am I the I? Am I both? Am I the snow? You know, I'm all these things in the poem at once. That's right. At least in the duration of reading it. And hopefully for a few beats after. Well, I really uh, love talking with you about these terrific poems, and, and thank you so much, Richie, for talking with us today. No, thank you. It was such a pleasure, Kevin. French Novel by Richie Hoffman, as well as Henri Cole's Twilight, can be found on newyorker.com. Henri Cole's most recent book is Gravity and Center. Richie Hoffman's latest collection is A Hundred Lovers. You may subscribe to this podcast, The Fiction Podcast, The Writer's Voice Podcast, and The Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses, with help from Hannah Eisenman. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. 
You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 